Howdy, everyone. It's PNN, and I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It's Sunday, March 14, 2021. Karl Marx died on this day 138 years ago, and, you know, I find it interesting that his name uh, in sociology departments across the, the country forever, his name has been synonymous with uh, an economic critique of the way we behave in society. Uh, anytime you want to talk about things that have to do with uh, workers or with the way that money works, you're doing a Marxist critique. Ta-da! You're a socialist. But it's you, you know, there, were, there was a weird detente about Karl Marx that happened 80 years ago uh, at the beginning of World War II. You know, going into World War II, uh, prior to that, we had had a, a lot of um, socialist and communist organizations that were affiliated with unions or not uh, that were, you know, trying to get the same kind of protections for people in the United States that uh, were uh, people were instituting already in Europe. Um, we, uh, we're starting to see that again. And I think that the reason for that is, is, uh, our healthcare system, student loans and wealth inequality. And, uh, we're going to be talking about some of that tonight. So I just want to throw that out there to frame things up tonight. Uh, because it's spring, we've already moved into daylight savings time. We'll be sharing some of our favorite places in Florida to get out in nature before it's what I call murder hot here and uh, storming every afternoon. And Kardik Krishnire will join us because he started a new series on the Florida squeeze that I'll be contributing to from the standpoint of kayaking and wildlife photography. And he's writing up a lot on places to visit in South Florida. I'll share my favorite places to visit in central Florida, central North Florida and on the coasts uh, places where we've gone uh, exploring in the in the kayak and in other uh, modes of transportation, we go out on bikes. Sometimes we go out on foot for photography. So I I have uh, learned some very interesting and cool uh, lesser known places to go, and I'm going to share a few of those because you know our audience isn't huge, and it's I I don't feel like I'm going to be sending a hundred thousand people to these favorite spots, but I think it's important for people to understand a little bit better what Florida is actually about. And Florida really is actually about more than just, uh, just the attractions. It's more than SeaWorld. It's more than Disney and Universal, for God's sakes. Janine Malas, at the top of the next hour, uh, she has a whopping big story. It's part two of her vaccine apartheid series. And this this week, she's focusing on monopolies and uh, copyrights, intellectual property, and that sort of thing. And she says that we should already have enough vaccine for everybody and that there is a reason why we don't. So really stay tuned for that. She did a ton of research into this, and uh, we talked about it earlier. Whoa, whoa, you got to hear this. So that'll be at the top of the next hour. Uh, I just want to run down a little bit of the news, you know, let's, 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 uh, let's get into the beat really quick. And then I've got a, a, a fun story for you that I am previewing that I'll be publishing later this week. So now with the beat. Mm-hmm. 
lawmakers in New York are moving to impeach Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, And, you know, those who only watch MSNBC are freaking out because they don't know. They don't know what's going on or what has been going on with Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, during COVID, except for the fact that he wrote a book about what a great job he was doing with, with COVID. And it turns out that he wasn't doing such a great job. Now, the reason why people are moving to impeach him actually seems to be more related to some sexual harassment and possible sexual assault uh, allegations that are uh, are pretty serious. It looks like there's two, not one, but two Kennedys who are uh, joining this chorus of people. And yet you still have a lot of these folks with, uh, you know, hashtag resist in their bios on social media. You still have these types of people who are uh, um, saying, oh, we're going to Al Franken him. And this is, this is a, a taking down a, a taking down a good man and, and all of this. And, and, uh, you know, I just want to remind people that, you know, he helped donor shield nursing home executives from legal consequences of 15,000 seniors dying in these nursing home facilities. They buried that data, which is the same thing that Governor Ron DeSantis did in Florida, buried the data of how bad it was and continues to be, and then promoted a book that was using that false data, you know? So, if you want a copy of that book, I, where I would look for it is in the sale bin in Costco, because that's where they're going to be dumping them. Uh, this, this book was, uh, was built on a false narrative. And, um, you know, we, we live in a time where people think that it's okay. They've normalized that his brother His little brother can interview him on CNN, and that's considered a definitive interview of Andrew Cuomo. So, you know, if you think that's cool, if that's the kind of – if that's the way you want to gather your data and understand the world, I guess that's up to you. But um, I'm here to remind you that uh, that that might not be the healthiest way to go about things. That might not be the best way to – to um, center yourself in in this particular um, issue. Governor Cuomo has been very problematic for a very long time. And as a Democrat, he's done a lot to damage the Democratic Party, where, you know, you've got majorities, Democratic majorities in the New York State Ledge, and he's strong arming them all the time to not put forth legislation that would really help people like decriminalizing marijuana and uh, uh, helping people with, with health insurance and so on and so forth. He, his performance as governor, what I'm saying is, is that it's just not, he's a Democrat, but he's, he's not been a great Democrat. So, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, Maybe be a little bit more critical. Uh, use use your critical thinking skills when it comes to uh, that particular story. Uh, another story I want to hit on really quick is that it's been 51 days with no press conference from Joe Biden, and uh, and I don't expect that we're going to see one anytime soon. Nor do I think it'll do him any good. 
I think that he's, I think it's evident that he has a really hard time speaking extemporaneously and he gets lost and, uh, um, and lashes out at people. That's what we saw in the campaign trail. And we don't need to see that from a president right now while we're in the midst of so much crises all at once. But, you know, the thing is, is that he's gone longer without a press conference, a formal press conference, than any president in the last 100 years. And that's starting to raise issues of accountability, right? Um, And it's halfway into... Did I say days? He's in a hundred years. In a hundred years, uh, uh, <laughs> he's had less press conferences than anyone in the last hundred years. Now, um, so we're halfway through. We're halfway through this this hundred days. And I was reminded by one of our guests last week, Chris Richards. You know, I said, you know, isn't that a a, a fake? You know, kind of a, a made up. Uh, uh, measure why does it have to be a hundred days? And he reminded me, and I was like, oh my god, I knew this. He reminded me that if you don't get things done in a hundred days, if you don't get this legislation pushed through, chances are it's not going to get pushed through because people start running for the next cycle, and we're already seeing people running for the next cycle, uh, especially in uh, for statewide seats. As we've talked about on the show, you know, people are already uh, getting out there and testing the water for the governor's race in Florida, for instance. So not having a uh, not having a press conference in in all of this time is problematic for a lot of people because, uh, you know, there's there's issues of transparency and accountability. Uh, 15 presidents more, you know, over the past hundred years, 15 presidents have had, uh, press conferences and have been more available to the, to the media than Joe Biden. So, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. I still don't think it's a good idea to put him out there. People are people are talking about it and uh, and calling for him to do uh, a, a solo formal news conference. Trump held his first solo formal conference 27 days into his presidency. Barack Obama did the same 20 days into his presidency. Um, you know, it is it is starting to be a little bit awkward. So we're going to have to see how that goes. Uh, right now, it's not looking um, it's not looking great. Now, however, he did do the speech the other night on the upon the signing of the relief bill, and thank God that finally got done. And People are going to uh, see their relief checks. I know that a lot of people I know have already received their relief checks. However, if you bank at Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo is holding everyone's relief checks until Wednesday. And they were released over the weekend. So you've got uh, five whole days that Wells Fargo is monkeying around with your money. And I don't think that that should be allowed. I don't know what they're doing there. Um, and 
I, for one, could definitely use that money. I would like to see it. Um, but, uh, but that's the way it is. That's the way it goes. Um, so good information there. If you bank with Wells Fargo and, uh, I think I'm going to stop banking at Wells Fargo. I think that's the, that's the bottom line of, of that. All right. I'm going to come back in just a second with, uh, with a preview of a story that I'll be releasing later this week. Hold on. All right. <clears throat> I had to do a little technical thing right there. Okay. So the big story this week, the big story for me, the one that I'm really interested in is uh, there was a story, an op-ed released in the Daily Beast. This op-ed was 19 pages long, printed out. It's 4,500 words by a uh, think tank guy who goes by uh, Alexander Reed Ross. And uh, this particular person is a known quantity within uh, uh, people on, on the left as someone who has a history of um, smearing at people on, who are on the left, especially people who are engaged in foreign policy debate. He has uh, been going after uh, Max Blumenthal at the the Gray Zone, published a series of articles. This Alexander Reed Ross guy did. He published a series of articles on Southern Poverty Law Center's website, and uh, they had to retract and apologize for them. Where he was calling everybody under the sun. He was calling them, you know, Kremlin useful idiots and uh, and making all of these allegations about it. And so I caught this. This is so interesting. I caught this exchange watching the, the Jimmy Dore show, which, you know, by the way, the Jimmy Dore show is actually must see uh, YouTube right now at the moment, you know, with all of the brouhaha over Jimmy Dore and force the vote and everything. That's not something I used to do. I used to not tune in during live shows for Jimmy Dore. Now I put it on while I'm doing dinner. And uh, and so it was on in the kitchen while we're doing dinner. It's me and my husband and, and our two dogs enjoying the uh, discourse there. But then the other night, uh, he had Max Blumenthal on. And Max Blumenthal... And, and, before the article dropped, before the Daily Beast article dropped, Jimmy Dore was letting his audience know that he got an email from Alexander Reed Ross, who was asking him for a quote. And Jimmy Dore didn't want his audience, he didn't want to mention the name Alexander Reed Ross. 
he wanted his audience to just, you know, he, he didn't want to give him any oxygen or give him any promotion. Uh, but Max Blumenthal has this history with him. So he was like, no, this is important. You need to know who this person is and you need to talk about this because this is actually a very dangerous, awful person. So I've got some clips here for you that I think are very interesting. Uh, and I will, of course, put the Daily Beast story in the show notes and also give you uh, the links for these videos. So here's the first one. I'm going to mention his name, and I'll tell you why. Oh, okay. Because, this, because he published a series of smears about me, about even Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the publisher of The Nation, Stephen Walt, who's one of the premier interrelation, international relations scholars in the country, Stephen F. Cohen, who the late great Stephen F. Cohen, who is our greatest yes. living Russian scholar in the U.S. at the Southern Poverty Law Center, accusing us of being involved in a red-brown secret alliance with fascists controlled by the Kremlin. And his entire archive was deleted, and the Southern Poverty Law Center was forced to apologize for all of the lies and smears that he published. His entire archive, three articles of smears, lies, distortions, and McCarthyite distortions of half-truths was completely existence. And he is running around trying to exploit the atmosphere, the post-January 6th yes, atmosphere. Yes, that's what he's doing. Here in order to not just smear, but create the context for the cancellation of people like you who are seen as really uh, influential left populist voices. And so I got an email like that from him and a number of other people. I mean, more people than I can count on my right hand who are influential podcasters, pundits, and journalists, all on the left, you know, DSA-type people even got email. And he wants to conjure up this narrative. His, his, his email to me was about, you know, me, um, like over a year ago on your show, I briefly criticized George Soros and for, you know, funding regime change operations. And I even said that a lot of the attacks on Soros are anti Semitic when they come from the right. I mean, I even said that, but he said, you know, you know, I'm fanning the flames of anti-Semitism. So I wrote his editor at the Daily Beast and I said, you know, I want you to know that this cat had his entire archive deleted at the Southern Poverty Law Center because he just came up, he, he published a series of demented McCarthyite lies. And so you know, there's there's the uh, there's the uh, the backbone of this, and I'm looking right now at one of the articles that was put up on the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's entitled "The Multipolar Spin: How Fascists Operationalize Left Wing Resentments." And uh, as you might imagine, it's uh, it's just really a, a bunch of uh, of crap, but he actually has a whole section in here on the uh, highway to the gray, to the gray zone. Now, the gray zone is Matt Blumenthal's uh, publication with uh, Ben Norton and uh, Aaron Maté and a few others. It's one of the best uh, places to get international news and foreign relations on uh, international news and analysis of foreign relations having to do with stuff that 
cable news and, and print media just aren't covering anymore. Like they're not covering Bolivia except to pu- publish PR. You know, just, just this week, uh, the, uh, the people who did the coup in Bolivia and put in, in uh, put that a Nez uh, person in place as president, you know, the woman with the giant Bible. Uh, well, she was arrested today for uh, for the oppression and the the uh, violence that was unleashed on the uh, in the indigenous population there. And so, you know, how the mighty have fallen. But you're still seeing headlines in major U.S. media that, that are saying that that's somehow, you know, a sign of an authoritarian dictatorship. And it's not. What's going on in Bolivia has to do with the, li- the lithium there. And, uh, and uh, Evo Morales wants to protect the value of the lithium so that that can be used uh, to enrich their the nation. You know, he's not just going to give it away and, you know, more power to him. Uh, so, so Alexander Reed Ross is, is, uh, he's, um, he's, he's got issues. He's got, uh, he's got some problems. He's, he's one of these people that has come up through the think tank uh, industrial complex, and uh, he's a he's an adjunct lecturer in geography out at a, a small university in Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, and he has this sideline in you know a- attacking people on the left. And he's been doing this for for quite some time. The date on the materials of the first Southern Poverty Law Center was in uh, March 9 of 2018, so fully three years ago. And uh, almost on the anniversary of that, he publishes this uh, piece in the Daily Beast called These Dirtbag Left Stars Are Flirting with the Far Right. It's exactly the same uh, analysis or the same, you know, mindset that he put to the put, put to the other piece. Now, this is a 19-page op-ed. Okay, this is not reporting. This is opinion, and uh, and I find it really odd that the Daily Beast, mm-hmm, you know, with the Chelsea Clinton on the board, that that the Daily Beast would uh, would go for this. But they've gone for this, and they are standing behind it. Now, in this piece, what he's doing is he is naming off all of these disparate, uh, all kinds of uh, leftist broadcasters and podcasters and uh, writers and reporters uh, I would I would say that that most of the people that are mentioned in here actually can't stand the other people who are mentioned in here. So he's got uh, the Australian Amy Therese, who is a, uh, a, a, a a class analysis fundamentalist. She's they've <laughs> they've got her uh, juxtaposed with uh, Jimmy Dore, who is a self-described pothead comedian. Um, they've got Chapo had trap house thrown in here. They've got another podcast called come town stuck in here. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to put that explicit label on just to, to talk about the, 
this this particular article. And the main claim that he makes here is uh, that playing footsie with the right, you know, he he tries to show he tries to show that 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 left wing folks are playing footsie with the right. Um, is not a common thing on the neo-socialist left. So he's made up this neo-socialist label, neo-socialist left. But there's a subset of this latter group, a small but influential band, who can veer into legitimizing the talking points of the extreme right. And he thinks that to, uh, to back up this claim, that he can just do guilt by association, you know, from one podcast to the next podcast, from one group of people to the next group of people. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing to, uh, to, uh, to go through, but, but I think it's important to go through because this is, this is to me, this is a clearly a, coordinated thought out attack on the left and it's taking advantage of certain kinds of counter uh, cancel culture um, uh, mechanisms that have been in play on social media and in our culture as a whole. And so, you know, people have been saying forever that council culture is going to, affect the left more than anyone on the right. And so, you know, when Alex Jones was deplatformed, you had a lot of people saying, oh, you know what, it's not good to normalize deplatforming people. And when Donald Trump was, was thrown off of uh, social media, uh, you know, people were like, hey, you know, maybe that's not a good thing to set a precedent for uh, um, shutting the president out of speaking to people. I mean, regardless of the fact that, that he was a complete bozo, you know, and uh, also ostensibly despite the fact that Joe Biden has no intention of speaking to people. Um, but at any rate, that's what we got. And I'm working on a, a, a much larger piece on this because I think that there's a lot to unwind here that is um, very important. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I find interesting is that there's another, there's another podcaster whose name is uh, Nomiki Konst. And she seems to be uh, connected into this somehow because she had Alexander Reed Ross on her show. Uh, and remember, she's she's affiliated with Sam Cedar in the Majority Report. She had Alexander featured him on a very long, in-depth interview on, I believe it was the 16th of January. This would have been after the uh, the siege on the Capitol. And this Recent is what they had to say. Folks on the left, um, this isn't new, but it's just been amped up and, and uh, it's been a little bit more... Uh, there's been some more, some clarity around it. There have been some leftists that have been uh, claiming to be populist that have, I, I won't go as far to say aligned. I think some of them absolutely have aligned and some of them have not. Uh, they've danced with Republicans uh, on, on. And again, you, that dancing with Republicans thing that echoes uh, what Alexander Reed Ross is talking about in the pieces that he had to take down from the Southern Poverty Law Center. So she's actually platforming 
She's actually putting forth the same ideas that the Southern Poverty Law Center said, no, no, that crosses a line. You can't do that. But no, no, Miki Kans thinks that's okay. In the populist, quote unquote, populist right. I, when I say Republicans, I don't mean the Republican Party. I mean, Tucker, I mean, I've been on Tucker Carlson many times, admittedly. I know him, but I go on to argue with him. I don't go on to agree with him. <laughs> I know that's a big point of debate. So Nomiki Kant doesn't actually go on. Let me let, let me uh, let me share something else with you. Uh, Nomiki Kant wants you to think that when she goes on Fox News or when she goes on Tucker Carlson, that it's all about pushing back on them. That's not quite true. Uh, Nomiki Kant is uh, involved with uh, the Truman Project, which is a think tank, the, a democratic think tank that is uh, very pro-defense. Very, they're very hawkish, and she's actually gone on uh, on Fox and on these these uh, different shows, not so much to push back, but to cheerlead for uh, very. Uh, how shall you say um, aggressive foreign policy? Listen to this. As wars in and Iraq. No, Mickey, did you hear anything new from the president today? You know, what the president did today was he explained what he's accomplished, what the administration has done with the rest of the world, with the, with the coalition of Arab states, the World Coalition, in attacking ISIS at its core in Iraq and in Syria. He's talking about cutting off the head of ISIS. You know, the time. Are they contained? I, you know, they're more contained than they've ever been. They're not spreading as of last week. They're, you know, when you look at military, when you look at the troops on the ground there, they're being attacked militarily. It is America's amping up of intelligence. It's America's amping up of national security and internet security. Oh, sure. Like Nomiki Kant. So, so that's Nomiki Kant not pushing back on anyone at uh, Fox News. She was on the O'Reilly Factor and she was on Tucker. And what she was doing was cheerleading for uh, war in in Syria, and cheerleading for uh, you know supporting and arming Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's not pushing back on on uh, people on on Fox News. That's actually exactly what they want to hear. That's exactly what they want to talk about. Um, so, but that is just a preview. That is just a preview. I'm publishing this this week and we'll be launching it, uh, in a couple of different formats, uh, written and audio and video, but we've been working on this for quite some time. And so be on the lookout for that. And, uh, with that, I will be right back with Kardik Krishnan. All right, we got Cardit Krishnar here to talk about a new series that he's doing on the Florida Squeeze that is all about awesome places to check out in Florida. Hey, Cardit. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. You're sounding good. Uh, sounds oh, like Blog Talk Radio is is uh, and and everything is kind of maybe there the audio has been worked on. 
yeah, they're, they're temperamental and moody, Blog Talk Radio, as I can attest to. So some days it's good, some days it's bad. So let's take, it, take the good while we can. That's right. That's right. So I'm really excited about this this series because um, there's there's a lot of places that I like to go to that are really off the map, and I think that they're the kind of places that uh, you know I try to find these these jewels. You know what what Florida is really about, um, and you know full disclosure, I've never been to Disney World. Born in Florida, lived here until I was in high school, never been to Disney World. I have no intention of going. I don't care about that stuff. But what I do care about are our springs, our beaches, uh, the Everglades, and just awesome places to go to. And so you started out this week with a piece on, is it Cypress Preserve? Yeah, so it's, it's, this is one very close to my house, so it was just basically experimenting because it's a nice little quaint urban park, uh, Cypress Hammock uh, Preserve in Coral Springs. But I've got several kind of more prominent sites uh, in the queue. One is uh, Tall Cypress, which is really a unique ecosystem where you've got uh, some marshland, you've got saw palmetto, you've got Tall Cypress coexisting. Uh, in Broward County, I, I've gone and filmed at a place called Long Key, which was actually a significant location for um, Native American settlements in the past, which is uh, a, a preserved piece of, of Everglades and Cypress Hammock uh, in kind of an urban area also, which is very unique. Fern Forest, I'm actually, which is uh, a park in Broward County that I've compared to Rock Creek Park, just for it's, it's, it's great urban landscape because it's in an urban area, but it's this great preserved natural area. Uh, I'm going to actually go, go there this week. Uh, big Cypress. I, I, I had to go to Naples yesterday. So I, uh, I hit a little bit of big Cypress, although I, I need to go back and do more. And the idea is to get some of these places that are off the beaten path. I think everybody knows about Silver Springs. Everybody knows about Shark Valley at Everglades National Park, right? Not everybody knows about some of these other uh, things in the Everglades. Uh, I want to I hit um, Hope Sound and the Indian River, uh, that area, uh, Indian River Lagoon area, uh, Pelican, uh, Pelican Island, uh, areas like that also in film there. And basically what I'm doing, and, and, and obviously you're going to be uh, part of this series, are filming short, short videos, anywhere from 30 seconds to 10 minutes, right? Um, that, that give kind of a, a flavor uh, of, uh, of the natural area and uh, trying to make it as panoramic as possible. That's, that's not always that easy. Uh, but basically what I've done is I've seen on YouTube, some of these very prominent YouTubers do this for big cities uh, and they do this for, um, for drives right on highways, but I haven't seen that many good uh, hiking of natural areas. So for example, uh, and this is also kind of unfortunately COVID related since, since uh, there is a, there has been a, uh, a lockdown in other parts of the country. Thankfully, so many of those people have come to Florida and, and, and walked around here and filmed our cities. And I've noticed that in the last six months. So you have, uh, because Disney world is open, you have people filming in Disney and you have people filming uh, on Miami Beach and Clearwater Beach has actually been big the last couple of months, I've noticed. Uh, tons of 4K films of Clearwater Beach. But there are very few 
films of natural Florida. So I, I, I'm noticing even when tourists come here, Brooke, they're not uh, they're not exploring natural Florida. They're not exploring. Uh, and I want to get up to, uh, St. John's River and do that as well because I've, um, once I get my COVID vaccine, my plan is to spend some time in St. Augustine finishing research for a book I'm writing on Florida history. And at that point, can hit all the natural sites in that area along the St. John's River. And then obviously uh, there's actually still some good marshland um, north and south of St. Augustine, uh, between Ponte Vedra and St. Augustine and south between St. Augustine and Palm Coast uh, that that I want to hit and film in. But uh, your point about Disney World is well taken. I thought I was uh, unique because I haven't been to a Disney park since uh, 2003, I think. And I thought that that was remarkable for someone living in Florida. But you, you deserve a, a badge of honor for having never been to Disney World in your life, despite <laughs> being a Floridian. Uh, my mother had a political beef with, um, with uh, Walt Disney. I don't know what it stemmed from, you know, if there was like some kind of snubbing or something. But we went everywhere else. We went to Bush Gardens, Six Gun Territory, Silver Springs, everything else. Uh, but she was just like, ah, I'm not going to Disney. <laughs> so <laughs> Which I, I kind of understand. I, I, I would assume this because I, I was always very insecure as a kid because my dad worked for NASA and all, all my friends in school would go to Central Florida. I grew up in South Florida. And they would go there during the summer and spend the week at Disney and never go to Kennedy Space Center. So I assume you did the opposite, especially considering you grew up in Brevard County. So you were right by yep. the Space Center. Yep, lots of Space Center. And we also, because I live next to Patrick Air Force Base, we were, uh, I, I took school trips to to the Air Force Base and got to see a lot more of that kind of weird defense part of it, you know, that, that kind of insider view. We got to go up into the um, control tower and, you know, watch them bring planes in and stuff. You know, they're flying those A-10s a lot over there, the little warthogs uh, for just for training. But, you know, there was a time when I was there when they would bring in the big spy planes and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was really cool growing up next to all of that. And, and of course, watching launches all the time. Yeah, which is something I did. I mean, I frequently went up to launches. And, in fact, I think I was going to be at uh, the Challenger launch. But then it got delayed and delayed because the previous mission, which actually Bill Nelson flew on, uh, which I think was actually numbered STS-31, even though uh, it was the 24th mission, uh, that mission kept getting delayed and pushed this mission, uh, STS-25, back to January 28th. And I think the launch date was originally January 20th or 21st, something like that. So I had, I had, uh, I was in sixth grade. I had midterm exams. I couldn't go. So. Um, I wasn't there that morning, thankfully, but I was at a lot of launches. And uh, yeah, that kind of reminds me how things have changed in Florida. Because if you, if you went to a shuttle launch then, and of course, I was always with my father, my mother, and my, in the VIP section. We get on the VIP bus, Bob Graham would be on the bus, right? You'd have these celebrities on the bus. You'd have like this very kind of Florida feel to the space program. I think at that time, Florida was very proud of the space program, proud of being a high-tech center, proud of being mm-hmm. uh, on, on the cutting edge of innovation. That's another thing. I mean, again, we, we, Brooke, we've, on the show, we've talked a lot about the, the part, when, when the partisan majorities in Florida changed, the priorities 
and tone of the state changed. I think that is another place where it changed, where uh, the Republicans, for the most part, had no interest in the space program in this state until Elon Musk got involved and they had a political ally that they could make money off of, et cetera. But uh, they, uh, in, in fact, uh, when the Republicans took control of Congress is when the space program really began to suffer uh, on a macro level. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I remember those days very fondly. And, and uh, the state was so invested in the state program or was, in the space program was something Florida was very proud of that, uh, that uh, the Cape was here and that the eyes of the world were on Brevard County and on Cape Canaveral every once a month, basically at that point. And it's something that uh, uh, now, uh, Floridians don't seem to care about. We were ground zero for the new frontier. And yeah. and growing up in that area, you really felt that. Like every Monday at, at my uh, junior high school, every Monday the you got out of your class. Everybody could get out of their class and watch the Rocket Club <laughs> do their little launches with those little model rockets. It was adorable. And it was also like a reason to, you know, get out of class for 20 minutes. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. But, but I want to turn to, <clears throat> you mentioned Pelican Island, which is one of my favorite places in the Indian River Lagoon. And it's got a really interesting history because uh, it, it's, it, it's the smallest wilderness area, first of all, in the National Wilderness Pres- Preservation System. And uh, when it was created, it was designated as a national uh, historic landmark, uh, uh, and it was at first in its status to set aside specifically to protect wildlife, and this was in 1963. Yeah. And that blows my mind, that it took till 1963 to, to uh, say, oh my gosh, we need to preserve land because there's particular kinds of wildlife that absolutely have to, you know, be here, do some business here. Uh, it's a, it's a rookery for, for pelicans, I believe. Yeah. So the actual national wildlife refuge was designated by Teddy Roosevelt in 1904. It was the first in the system, first national wildlife refuge in the country. And actually today it's, it's anniversary. It was March 14th, 1904, but they didn't expand wow. the boundary they didn't expand the boundaries and, and, and bring in some of the areas along the Indian River Lagoon uh, until uh, you mentioned 63. And that was due directly to the space program also, because mm-hmm. there was also um, one very positive thing that came out of the space program was there needed to be a preservation. This is how you got the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge also and Canaveral National Seashore and all of these other areas was there was a, uh, there was a need to preserve the land around the Cape to, to, uh, to, to, to prevent populations from encroaching on the launch area. And by encroaching on the launch area, I mean by encroaching within 20 or 25 miles of the launch area, right? It, uh-huh. As you know, there's no, there's no settlements north of Cocoa Bay or north of the town of Cape Canaveral uh, towards, the, uh, towards the launch pad. And then south of, I want to say, south of maybe Mims, right? There's nothing along the coast. Um, until no, 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 no populated settlements of human beings. So that led to a great uh, set aside of, of, of wildlife uh, uh, areas. And the Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge, I believe, was designated around that time also, maybe a little earlier, which is in that area as well. So, uh, but Pelican Island was the, was the first one. 
And there are a number of really good uh, sites that I also want to go to uh, on this tour and while we film and, and, and put this stuff on the floor to squeeze uh, that are in Indian River uh, County and also in, in, in St. Lucie County and, and Martin. Martin, of course, is, uh, the big one is Hope Sound National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which recently was renamed for Na- uh, Nathaniel Reed, which is great. You know, uh, Nathaniel Reed, we've talked about before. Uh, well, we've talked about him a lot on the Florida History Podcast. I'm not sure if we've talked about him on this show, Brooke, but he's, uh, uh, he just passed away a few years ago, was a leading Republican in the state, uh, a vicious opponent of the sugar companies. And he is uh, probably more personally responsible than anyone for getting Richard Nixon and Claude Kirk to, to uh, shut down the Everglades jet port, or the, the big cypress jet port, which uh, – uh, was a turning point, I think, in the environmental movement in this state. In the next 25 years after that, uh, environmentalists were on the move. Growth management laws were put in place. Uh, land was bought and preserved. We had the best state park system in the country by the late 90s. Uh, then, again, I mean, I hate coming back to this. And, and Reed is an example of a, of a traditional Republican, right? So the Republican Party is mm-hmm. very much a partner with the Democrats in this, in that period. However, after Governor Childs passed away, then Jeb Bush became governor, uh, the Republican Party in this state has been a, an anti-environmental party, a party that's uh, aligned with the sugar companies, although a lot of Democrats are too, um, and uh, aligned with uh, polluters. You, you brought to, to people's attention the situation with Nestle and our springs. So that's, uh, that's a whole other issue. Um, one of the things, though, that I would love to do is the area by the Cape, I think, what strikes so many people, if you go on one of those bus tours, which I assume they still do. I remember mm-hmm. it used to be the red and blue tour at the Cape. Um, what strikes so many people is the number of alligators you see. Yes. In and around. The, uh, go ahead. It was the first time I saw an alligator in Florida was on one of those bus trips. Honest to goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's, no, and for a lot of people, that's the first – if they're from out of state, that's the first time they've seen an alligator. And even people from the cities, uh, if, whether you're from Central Florida or South Florida or North Florida, you, you've never seen that density of alligators in mm-hmm. one place. Um, which is funny because um, alligators don't like brackish water, which is why you don't find them in the intercoastal. You don't find them in the lagoons. Uh, you find crocodiles. Now, uh, just the other day, there was a picture of a crocodile sunning itself on Key Biscayne. So that's, oh, uh, wow. that's kind of scary. Yeah, that's kind of scary because obviously um, Bill Bagg State Park, that's another place I'll be going. Bill, Bill Bagg, um Great Parks in, in the State Park system is right there on Key Biscayne, on the tip of Key Biscayne. And there are crocodiles in Biscayne Bay, which we sometimes forget. Mm-hmm. We, yes, we have alligators in the state of Florida. We do have crocodiles also, and they're limited to Biscayne Bay and Florida Bay. But it's one little uh, teeny tiny place right up there where you've got a bunch of crocodiles. And it's, it's it, for people who are interested in wildlife, it's, it is uh, because it's so small and it's so just compact and it's its own thing uh, is you got to go check it out. You, you, you got to go to the, to the bill yeah, bags. So places. Yeah. So it's two places, bill bags. You can see the crocodiles and then, Actually, if you get to the Turkey Point Nuclear Station, you can also, although yep. that's a little dicier. And they, they, they gravitate towards the nuclear power plant for some reason, crocodiles, because of the heat. And then, uh, because again, they're cold-blooded. And then the other place is the crocodile, uh, is, is uh, Lake Surprise and the Crocodile uh, uh, Refuge, which is um, 
basically straddles the Dade Monroe border, um, Dade County Monroe County border. If you, uh, the way to get there is if you, when you get to Florida City, when you go to the Keys, you keep going on US one um, south towards Key Largo. There is actually mm-hmm. a turnoff for Card Sound Road, um, mm-hmm. which uh, goes just out to the east. That's what you take to get to the Crocodile Lake. Um, so yeah, it is. It is an interesting thing. I want to do some filming there too. Although I do have to say, I'm a little terrified of, of crocodiles. I uh, I am not scared of alligators. I actually, got a couple of uh, did a video yesterday with a couple of alligators uh, in uh, the Miami Canal off of Alligator Alley. Uh, there's uh, there, there's just to me, most people there's no difference, right? But to me, there's a big I, difference. I know the alligator's not. Yeah, alligator's not going to come after me. Whereas the crocodile very well might. So. I, I will probably keep my distance there. But um, back to the point about Kennedy Space Center, I think um, the other thing that to me is so, is so fascinating about that area is that I think um, this has shown that if you have something vibrant like the space program that, um, that, uh, uh, that is uh, at the cutting edge and also employs a lot of people, you, you then get, you get to this, this uh, place where you start preserving land, right? And you start mm-hmm. doing the things that have kept that area very quaint and very, uh, v- very, very nice. Now, there are other parts of Florida along the coast that were like the, – the entire coast of Florida, eastern coast of Florida, was, was similar to uh, – was scrub and similar to the way um, the area around Merritt Island is. And it's it's been all destroyed. So there are little little pieces uh, that that I want to film in different places, and also maybe get get to the west coast um, and, and do some of the rookeries there, and the Peace River and uh, Mayaka River, some of the some of the natural uh, kind of wild uh, stuff that's there. But it, it's one of these things where uh, part of the impetus to do this now is that I think as we keep going in this direction in this state and it's probably part of a broader discussion, these areas will be gone soon. Right. Absolutely. And the, the, there is an imminent danger to that uh, area that is just north of the uh, Kennedy Space Center that is part of uh, the Kennedy Canaveral, uh, that, that is part of the uh, Merritt Island Refuge, and I forget what it's called. There's there's a name for this patch of land, but uh, I believe it's Elon Musk's outfit. Uh, I, I I could be wrong. You know, there there's two that are out there that are competing, and I think it's Elon Musk. But but they want to claim some of that land for these private uh, space folks. And the other so one I think it, might be Bezos, actually. So it's, okay. It's, 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 oh, good. Good. I, I, well. I, I we I have no problem uh, um, directing animus towards either one, so that's like either one works. But that would be a great loss, and and people have definitely banded together and said, you know, we're we're not going to stand for this. There is a you mentioned uh, seeing some of these unique natural areas within the. Merritt Island National Park area, which, by the way, if, pe- if people who like going to the beach go to the Canaveral C 
seashore beach because that's the real beach. That's like you're not getting uh, you're not getting any kind of influx from condominiums and you don't have any of this other yeah. behavior stuff out there. It's really pretty. It's pristine. Uh, and they have great uh, boardwalks where you can drive up and spend the day and bring a cooler. And so it's awesome. But there's a place uh, called Hallover Canal, which oh yeah, yeah. A Mosquito Lagoon with the with the Indian River, and Hallover Canal is a fabulous place. People go go there to just hang out because you can park your car and you can fish all day just from the from where you park your car. Essentially, it's just a natural area that is so accessible and so much fun. And it's always full of people. I mean, not like crowded full of people, but it's like nice seeing people out there enjoying themselves. So we like to take the kayak out from there and launch. You can launch on either side of the river. On one side, there is a big built area for big boats, for motor boats to put in. You could also uh, launch your kayak from over there. They also have like a sandy beach, but we like going to the other side. That's a little more um, clandestine, you can say, and we'll launch from there, which is where all of the uh, kayak uh, outfitters launch from. So there's a there's a there's an outfit called a day away uh, kayaking that are located in Titusville, and they're fantastic to do. A paddle with you can rent kayaks with from them. They'll they will take you out in the in the uh, starting in June is when the uh, uh, luminescence starts occurring in the in the lagoon and that's really fun. So you go out in the nighttime and when your paddles hit the water, it glows because of the uh, microorganisms. But we one of the things that is so cool about out there is you launch. You launch from Hallover Canal and you paddle to the next major island going going west, and that's Mullet Head Island. You can pretty much just ask anybody who's out there which way to Mullet Head Island, and they'll just point straight at it. And Mullet Head Island is just like Pelican Island in that it's a rookery for um, uh, for white pelicans in the winter time, and then all kinds of every every other kind of bird you can imagine is out there and so you can paddle around it you're not allowed to uh, land or walk on the walk on the and you wouldn't want to because it's full of birds and it's it's a it's just it's just kind of a mess but you can paddle around it and you can hear all of the calls and all of the the weird stuff they sound like dinosaurs so the place is full of pelicans and great blue herons and uh, uh, all of those little shorebirds, you know, like the um, sandpipers and the the stilts, and it's just it's just amazing. One little teeny tiny island that you can paddle around and you can see almost every kind of bird. Uh, pink uh, rosette spoonbills. You can see every kind of bird, like within 20 minutes, just paddling around the island. It is a jewel. And you can also access the Hallover Canal, if I remember correctly. There is a launch from State Road 3 that cuts through between yep. 
uh, the Banana River and, and the Indian River. Or, the, or uh, we keep calling these things rivers, but they're really lagoons, which, again, getting back to the whole alligator-crocodile conversation, you find crocodiles in the brackish waters and the lagoons of South Florida. You will not find alligators. In fact, lagoons are the only waters that when you get north of, of, of Broward County, because in Miami-Dade and Broward, you have some crocodiles. Uh, there's some, uh, they're in Dade, but they're wayward crocodiles that get north into Hollywood Beach and, and uh, John Lloyd State Park, that area. But once you get north of Broward, um, brackish water is the one safe place to dip your toes in the state because there's likely no um, – the, the, it's astronomical, uh, the chances of there being an alligator in there. Whereas any fresh water in the state – I mean, this is why I, 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 find it, uh, I find it kind of funny – that they had post signs in, in all these parks I go to would say there are alligators in the area. Of course there are alligators in the area <laughs> if there's fresh water. It's Florida. Right. Um, but I think that's a liability issue, right? Because Disney stupidly had not done that. And, and uh, right. a poor uh, a young kid got chomped up by an alligator. Yep. Um, they, and the Disney property, just think about where it is. It has to be crawling with alligators. Oh, Apparently yeah. they found like 50 alligators after that. I'm sure it's it's a, it's, it's a thousand that are on the Disney property. It has to be. Well, and every year about, not quite about this time, it starts about in April, is when the, uh, the, the, <clears throat> the large reptiles start to get really active when it starts to get warm. Oh, yeah. So it's starting to get warm now. They're starting to get active. But about April is when they're mating, and they they will get up on their legs and – they can haul ass for, you know, six miles. They can move all over the place. So, you know, once a, a, an area is cleared, say out in a, a, one of those camp camping facilities that Disney has, once they clear an area and you go through another year cycle with the whole mating thing, it, alligators are out looking for new territory to claim. And so they'll, they'll go and they'll claim it again. Um, I like seeing alligators myself. I think that they're really cool. Uh, I love watching them. Uh, I don't like getting too close to them. But one place I like to see alligators is a place called Orlando Wetlands Park. And I was talking about this particular kind of park with a friend of mine from the um, uh, Water Management District. And there are a bunch of parks in Florida that are built around the uh, 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 wastewater treatment. They are natural yes. wastewater treatment areas. And this particular park has more than 220 species of birds and 600 species of butterflies. And uh, every time I've been out there, I've seen uh, just amazing birds. They have, uh, and the birds are residents there. They're not so much the uh, um, migratory. If you want to see migratory birds during the winter, definitely go to uh, the uh, Black Point Drive in Merritt Island National Refuge. That is, that is where you will see the migratories. But, uh, but this is a lot of fun. And these these places, there's a few places in Florida where. They are these, uh, they're, they're running gray water through all of these marshes and all of this natural wetland. Um, and so it's cleaning the water. Uh, so yeah. it's, it, it's not like you see like a, a water treatment plant at all. All you see is wetlands. 
So there is one that I really love that I actually might go to this week or next week, whenever I find time in the next few weeks. Wadahoochee wet Wetlands is what it's called. It's, uh, it, it's maintained by the Palm Beach County uh, Wastewater District or Palm Beach County Water Control District. And it's exactly how you describe Orlando Wetlands. I, I'm not sure the number of species of birds, but tons of different birds, uh, alligators um, up the wazoo. I took my niece there a couple months ago, and she loved it, and didn't and couldn't believe there was something like this in uh, in Palm Beach County, right? Because uh, it, it's not it's not really advertised. You kind of have to know about it, but it's uh, uh, but it was also packed, which is residents know about it. But it's it's these are hidden gems, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Brooke, most of the big counties have one of these. Like I said, this is the one in Palm mm-hmm. Beach, Wadahoochee. I think there's one in Broward called. Uh, uh, Chapel Hill or, or something, something uh, I'm Chapel Hill's what here, but something like that, which is the same sort of thing. It's a wastewater treatment. Orlando wetlands you mentioned, which is also uh, close to uh, close to the St. John's River system, which makes it even more kind of interesting. Uh, and there are a number of these. Uh, there's one in Brevard also. Uh, a good uh, one. That's a, yeah, a real good one in Brevard. It's in Vieira. I can look it up real quick. Yes. It's called Vieira Wetlands. <laughs> oh, that's pretty logical. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, keep keep in mind when Vieira was built, Vieira was built to be this kind of new county seat because the population of Brevard County had shifted south, and Melbourne and Palm Bay had become the primary cities. But when um, the, the the Titus was designated as the county seat, uh, Mims, Titusville, and Coco were the three primary cities, and Titusville was midway, kind of between or with the central city, but midway between Coco and Mims. So the era was built to, to have county administration, et cetera, in the early 90s. Uh, and it's become kind of like this jumping off point because um, the other thing about Vieira is that's the point where the St. John's River is actually very close to I-95. That's I don't right. Know if people realize it's only a few miles west at that point. So it's become this jumping off point for uh, hiking through those marshlands there and, and, and this, this facility as well. So uh, Vieira, another place to check out. It's not a place you often think of in Brevard County. No. Um, but, but if you're, if you're from Brevard County, you're, you're definitely aware of, of Vieira and all of the, the wildlife out there. Uh, we used to, we used to ride our bikes across Pineda Causeway <laughs> to go and hang out and, walk the trails and God, we used to get a lot of exercise when I was a kid let me put it that way it's a long ride from the beach all the way over to Vieira um, but we used to do that so uh, yeah how can people oh, I was gonna find say, now the road is built through oh, sorry I was gonna just say the road is now built through Pineda Causeway which didn't go all the way to I-95 now does mm-hmm. connect to I-95 in Vieira uh, yeah uh, that just got done in the last few years it's amazing. Well, you know, what my my house actually backed up to the Pineda Causeway and we moved there in like 1975, I want to say. Wait a minute, I was 10 years old, 76. And uh no cars. There were no like we're we're a block from the ocean. There was no cars that ever came by our house. So we're like, that's great. Oh, you wow. don't have anybody behind you. Uh, by the time I came back to Florida in like, I want to say 1997, 98, you know, to do something with the house, there was so much traffic there and we were clamoring for a, um, a noise abatement wall, you know, 
please build a big wall. And after I sold the house, they finally did that. So I'm really glad because people are really using that corridor now and they never used to. Um, but it's really cool. And at the end, I'll say this, at the end of the Pineda Causeway is probably one of the coolest beaches. Uh, we used to call it Radar Beach because there's those big radar balls there uh, next to it. Uh, it's affiliated. It's, it's near the um, uh, Patrick Air Force Base. And that's a really wonderful place to watch launches or just, you know, have a picnic. There's coral reefs that are... Um, this, this this coral at low tide, what I really love about that part is there's coral exposed at low tide and you can see the whole ecosystem of tidewater stuff there. Just just right there for the taking. But if you want to go swimming, go down to Second Light, which you just drive north through Patrick Air Force Base, drive north, and it's the next beach that you come to. It's called Second Light and that uh, the Air Force literally removed all of the coral rocks because they thought they might have to land amphibious vehicles there. And what they did was they created some of the best surf and the best surfing uh, area that you will find in uh, Central Florida. It's awesome. Second light. Everybody knows about it. It's not like I'm like telling a secret or anything. Um, but how can people find your series? It's up at the Florida Squeeze. Yeah, so go to go to YouTube and just look up the Florida Squeeze, and it will be. We've all, I've only released this one video, Cypress Hammock, but I've filmed several others, including a couple shorts. I filmed the short uh, entering the big big Cypress National Wildlife Pref- uh, Refuge uh, yesterday. Uh, I filmed a couple of other shorts that have, that have been uploaded, and I'll, I'll work on editing. I'm making sure actually they're of HD quality before they get published and going to uh, film a few more this week. But the YouTube page of the Florida Squeeze is the easiest place to find it. It's kind of been hidden. We, we uploaded a couple of history documentaries during lockdown. Uh, Robert Buccellato and I uh, were, were messing around with that because we were in lockdown in April and May and, and hadn't done anything with the page since. So um, that's where you can find it uh, on YouTube, uh, the Florida Squeeze. Hit subscribe and you'll get, uh, you'll get everything as, as they come out. Because I'm going to release one or two week. And then obviously, uh, Brooke, we're, we're going to have you as part of this as well, um, mm-hmm. filming and, 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 and contributing. So the hope is that is to release, uh, uh, one or two a week and they're fairly short. Uh, don't want them to be any longer than, than 10 or 15 minutes. Cause I think that that's, that, that bores people beyond that. And, yeah. uh, although I can watch these things, I mean, I can watch these things for hours, but I know most people can't. So trying to keep them short. <laughs> Well, awesome. And uh, so uh, we will be looking out for that. And that's exciting. The launch of the Florida Squeeze YouTube channel. Folks, go check that out. And Cardick, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this. This is a a great subject. And uh, let's do some more of this in the future. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brooke. And and have a great show. You too. Um, Well, if you're having a show. I will be right back with Janine Moloff and this massive mega monopoly report about the vaccine apartheid. This is some serious stuff, y'all.
And I want to welcome Janine Maloff this week uh, to continue her discussion of vaccine apartheid in our series, Not Dying for Wall Street. Uh, Janine, what do you have for us tonight? Well, thanks, Brooke. Um, frankly, there's the more I research, the more, not only, the more lies, but incredibly stupid lies I find. You know, at the end of the day, there really is no excuse, for instance, for a vaccine shortage or a slow rollout. It's been manufactured. All right? The fact is, we don't, it doesn't have to be this way. Okay? Uh, as I said last week when I, we talked about, when I talked about the domestic issues, all right, where we could actually, you know, take control of this, uh, I mentioned the Bayh-Dole Amendment, and that is a 40-year-old law, and it basically says that in the event of an emergency, and this pandemic certainly fits that criterion, and the criterion is kind of vague, actually, so it, yeah, it does, that the U.S. government could temporarily or permanently, they could revoke or freeze patent monopolies that are held by, for instance, Big Pharma. Good example, the vaccines. All the vaccines, their patent monopoly could have been frozen by Bayh-Dole. You don't actually need, the president doesn't need congressional approval because it's established law. 40 years, it was established 40 years ago. It has never been used. And frankly, the idea that Congress, members of Congress, most, many of them are attorneys from, you know, basically Ivy League law schools, and they have congressional staff that, again, are also lawyers. And I'm not a lawyer, but they couldn't look this little detail up seriously. You know, and, and as we said last week, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Bernie, Senator Bernie Sanders came out and said, look, we need to do something about the World Trade Organization, which I'm going to be talking about in a minute, in terms of loosening up um, vaccine supply, creating generics, and so on and so forth. But what he didn't mention was Bayh-Dole. And again, the silence here is deafening. We have had the solution to forcing basically these big pharma to give up, to not have that patent monopoly for a while, so we could produce vaccine, they would share the secrets, they would produce vaccine on site in every state in the United States. And that the power's always been there. Trump had it, and now President Biden does. So we talked about those domestic issues this week, we're going to talk about the international issues and all ties in with the World Trade Organization or the WTO. And this deals with not only vaccine apartheid, but treatment as well. There is a huge difference here. It's been estimated that a lot of countries in the Southern Hemisphere, especially nations that are poorer and browner or blacker, will not receive at the present rate enough vaccine to vaccinate their populations until 2024. And that's inexcusable. And you know, this is a moral issue. Healthcare is a human right, but it's also a pragmatic issue. You know, Fauci, several other medical experts have said that the only way we're gonna be able to control this is if we get vaccine out everywhere. That's it. And that will help slow down new variants as well. So you know, basically big pharma is making it so that more people, in my opinion, will get sicker. So let's look at this. So we talked about Dr. Tedros, who is from Oxfam International. 
And he also, you know, basically, you know, he's basically said that um, we need to, quote, we need to be on a war footing. And Dr. Tedros is also with the World Health Organization. He calls for vaccine patent waivers so that we can halt the pandemic. And the patent waiver, for those that don't know what this is about, it goes back to all these multilateral trade agreements, whether it's the TPP, GATT, NAFTA, you name it, they all go back to basically the, the, the granddaddy of corporate, what I'll call the corporate mafia, and that is the World Trade Organization, which was created in 1995. And this is an instance where a patent waiver that's basically been protected by the World Trade Organization would mean that that patent was not in effect and that the research, the product, the procedure to create the vaccine, for instance, any um, related technologies needed to produce it, that would all be made available, the open sharing. And that's the only way we're going to be able to get enough vaccine out to everybody. That's it. And you know, once again, these doctors connected with Big Pharma, they know this. They hire epidemiologists, which is a doctor that's basically an expert in transmittable diseases and how diseases go through a population. So Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, um, basically, as I said before, this was in Common Dreams, um, urged global powers to, quote, pull out all the stops, and that, in, and that meant also including waiving Big Pharma's vaccine patents so that we can get it out. And he was quoted as saying in an op-ed published The Guardian, quote, sharing doses, boosting manufacturing by removing barriers, and ensuring that we use data effectively to target left-behind communities is key to ending this crisis. And this was an op-ed that he wrote and published in The Guardian. He also said the vast majority of some 225 million administered COVID-19 vaccine doses, quote, have been in a handful of rich and vaccine-producing countries, while most low- and middle-income countries watch and wait. Uh, such a me-first approach is ultimately self-defeating, and that's because, quote, as long as the virus is spreading anywhere, it has more opportunities to mutate and potentially undermine the efficacy or, in other words, effectiveness of vaccines everywhere. We could end up back at square one, end quote, and that was Dr. Tedros with the World Health Organization. And he's exactly correct. He goes on to say, quote, whether it's dose sharing, tech transfer, or voluntary licensing as the World Health Organization's own COVID-19 technology access pool initiative encourages, or waiving intellectual property rights, in other words, waiving patent monopolies, um, as such as South Africa and India have been proposing, we need to pull out all the stops. He went on to say, quote, flexibilities and trade regulations exist for emergencies and surely a global pandemic, which has forced many societies to shut down and cause so much harm to businesses, business both large and small qualifies. We need to be on a war footing. Okay. And he also added that other global threats, like the climate crisis, are going, are going to demand that we have international cooperation. And so he said, quote, the faster we can vaccinate, the faster we'll be able to focus on fighting, in other words, those issues. And he said, the future is ours to write, end quote. And he's right. 
Okay, there's there's no question about it. And yet we're giving kudos to Big Pharma, even though they're behind this slow rollout because they want to protect the profits. <clears throat> we give kudos to the World Trade Organization, even though once again they're behind this too. And this all deals with what's called a TRIPS waiver. And basically, there was a protest outside the WTO headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. This was reported by Reuters. Activists, and this has been going on for a while now, activists with Doctors Without Borders um, had a banner reading, quote, no COVID monopolies, wealthy countries stop blocking TRIPS waiver, end quote. And so, you know, what... Excuse me, U.S. Representative Ro Khanna from California tweeted also, quote, denying poor countries the COVID vaccine to allow pharma to profit from IP, which is intellectual properties, in other words, is cruel and morally bankrupt. This should be a no-brainer. President Biden must grant the waiver so that millions around the world can develop the vaccine and save lives, end quote. And that's from Ro Khanna, and he's totally right. Now, there was an article also <clears throat> from uh, Boston University Global Developmental Development Policy Center just in December. And they were talking about COVAX, which is a donor-driven effort to come up with 2 billion vaccine doses, but it's underfunded, and it's only been able to obtain 700,000 doses. And meanwhile, wealthy countries have secured allegedly 6 billion, with a B, doses, as uh, documented by The Lancet, a medical journal. It's also say, it also uh, wrote that the World Health Organization's proposed COVID-19 technology access pool is more promising because it would create a patent pool of intellectual properties, technologies, and data, but it has been basically shunned or just walked away by the major drug companies, and that's according to theconversation.com. I'm looking at a map right now, and rich countries will get access uh, basically, this, it, it's a color-coded map, and it says when will COVID vaccines be widely available. You know, we know that in countries like the U.S., Canada, Europe, um, parts of Russia, in other words, nations with white majorities, it comes sooner. Most of Africa, not till 23 or 24, and that's inexcusable. So we look at this again, and we're talking about a TRIPS waiver again. That's basically freezing that, that monopoly. It was proposed originally um, duly by India and South Africa to the World Trade Organization. And members of the, the EU, the United States, Canada, they all basically stonewalled it. And you can't talk out of both heads of your mouth, both, uh, both ends of your mouth, that is. Um, so the experts, are, they quote here a Dr. Mustakim Degama, who is part of the team that initiated the waiver uh, that was proposed by the South African World Trade Organization uh, group. And Dr. Degama explained how these international trade rules, you know, that affect trade and investment, go really into domestic policy agendas as well. And they keep governments from acting in the public interest because they're so terrified of World Trade Organization disputes or what's called investor state disputes. And that's something we've talked about before on this show. And this is something where this is far more than just asking for a waiver. 
you know, TRIPS waiver, which basically would be a temporary solution. So the patent monopolies would have to basically allow people to have access and not have to pay the exorbitant price. It's more than just that. Uh, and the sad part is I, I wrote about this some years ago, and this was actually, I think this was when the TPP was during the Obama administration, yeah. And I wrote this in 2013, and it was in an article that I titled TPP or the Trans-Pacific Pact, the 1% Solution to Democracy, Government by Corporate Dictates. And the TPP uh, was one that really dealt with what's called a, mass, a weapon of mass deception. And that really dealt with um, this investor state dispute stuff. Now, during this, when this was being proposed, so, you know, again, it's, it's even before Trump, um, Congress, members of Congress were locked out. In fact, they weren't just locked out. They weren't even, they were never invited to the party. Now, the U.S. trade rep permitted a limited viewing of the text, but, you know, again, they weren't allowed to have expert staffers. Um, they couldn't have recording devices. And this was, I found out about this by accident because, um, somebody you know, actually, Congressman, then Congressman Alan Grayson was making a stink about this, saying, look, I, I'm a member of Congress. I can't get access. I remember because I contacted him and interviewed him on this. And um, Ron Wyden was also involved. And this, the secrecy was really hiding this investor state dispute nonsense. Okay. And to put it in uh, Alan Grayson's words, um, TPP establishes what are called procedures that are essentially abrogating our democracy. These are direct quotes from Congressman Grayson. He explained further that they, the TPP International Tribunal, which would be like their private court, replaces our five-step established court systems for claims against the government with an alternative system that is wired for the benefit of multinational corporations. Grayson added that the TPP extends into matters which aren't under the purview of trade relations. And he added that, quote, the TPP, quote, goes farther beyond anything, even remotely resembling trade, and systematically interferes in areas such as finance that most people would regard as having no connection to matters of trade. The agreement extends well beyond trade in a manner that systematically benefits multinational corporations to the detriment of health, there it is, safety, the right to organize, and other fundamental human rights and progressive values. And this is, it really is, a, when we signed on to this, this investor state dispute resolution thing, basically, it's a way, it's a form of basically surrendering our sovereignty as a nation. This is, it grants, there are rights, um, foreign investors, investors from foreign companies can sue other nations. So, for instance, the Canadian corporation could sue an American corporation. Maybe the Canadian, there was one case where a Canadian mining uh, operation was dumping toxics into a water supply here in the United States. Um, that state passed a law saying, no, you can't do that. So the Canadian group said, no, no, no. World Trade Organization says, we have, you know, we yes, we can do it. And they sued. And the problem is that when you have to go to these investor state dispute uh, mediators, 
um, there is no accountability. Those mediations are also secret. Um, there's the, the, the final decision is issued, and they don't have to give a reason. And most of the top mediators that are used for this process, um, they're paid by basically different sides. So most of them have been paid by these corporations that they're going to decide. And that's not going to work. All right. So basically the tribunal has the right to set aside even previous court decisions or the results of public elections. And I wrote that corporate personhood is, ele is elevated to emperor and the concept of consent of the government is reduced to a trite joke. Um, Lori Wallach at, uh, at, from Public Citizen was quoted as saying that these foreign tribunals, quote, would be staffed by private sector lawyers who rotate between acting as judges and representative corporations, suing governments, posing major conflicts of interest. Okay. So that's what we're dealing with, actually. And so, you know, asking for a waiver, a, a patent monopoly waiver for the vaccine, that it's an immediate step that needs to be taken, but it's not strong enough. That's what we're dealing with right now, um, because we're asking from an organ, we're asking an organization that has stolen power and has no right to do what they're doing. Please, you know, just give us a little break here, and that's nonsense. So, we're going ahead here. And there was a group called um, Fair World Project. And there was a, a piece written by Anna Canning. And it was just written a few weeks ago, February 17, 2021. The headline was Put People Before Big Pharma Profits Make COVID-19 Vaccines Accessible. So when I kind of went around with this WTO stuff and the investor mediation, investor tribunal mediation, it's because these member states of the WTO, especially from poorer and browner nations, they know wealthier nations are going to say no. So they're doing the best they can. They're just trying to say, please give us a break this one time without challenging the actual power structure that is absolutely illegitimate. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, one of the things this group is saying that they should reverse the Trump administration's action at the World Trade Organization, which did cut off vaccine uh, access to poorer countries. They're also supporting the TRIPS waiver. And it's within President Biden's power to do that. This story is another example how trade deals are rigged to put corporate profits ahead of human rights. And this they are also saying the same thing. A global vaccine apartheid is unfolding. Again, last week we talked about the, on the domestic side. Here in the U.S., with American companies, we could enact by dole and just basically freeze their patent monopoly and issue vaccine and share the information in every state of the union. Internationally, it's a little more complex. So... Winnie Bayayima, who is the executive director of UNAIDS and a UN undersecretary general, was the one that said this global vaccine apartheid is unfolding. It was reported by The Guardian. Um, they point out that at the beginning of the pandemic, global leaders, you know, they made a pledge. They would do everything they could 
to make sure there was equitable access to test treatments and vaccines. And that was according to the World Health Organization news. But as the pandemic raged on, that didn't happen. In fact, there was a report, and it was issued by Oxfam, that showed that 9 in 10 people in poorer, majority black and brown countries will not get vaccinated until sometime in 2024. And basically, I'm seeing this vaccine, vaccine apartheid and treatments as well. It's a crime against humanity. It's sponsored by the predatory capitalism of these equally predatory multilateral trade agreements, which all these countries signed off on. And here in the United States, both Democrats and Republicans signed off on. Keep in mind, the World Trade Organization was formed during the Clinton administration. Now, meanwhile, they're saying wealthier nations have hoarded doses. In fact, they're saying that wealthier nations, white nations, have hoarded so much vaccine that theoretically they could vaccinate their entire population three times over by the end of 2021. Now, if that's the case, if that statistic is correct, I'd like to know where the hell the vaccine is. Because I know in my home state it's not happening. So countries like you, the U.S., Canada, the U.K., um, they, they said, you know, those countries have just 14% of the world's population, but they have contracts for 53% of the most promising vaccines. So, you know, President Biden is trying to expedite uh, basically vaccine distribution and he's had a lot on his plate, and I understand that. But his administration has also remained silent regarding the World Trade Organization rule that is enforcing this vast inequality. He could take action. So how did this TRIPS, the TRIPS agreement waivers come about? Well, in October of 2020, two nations, India and South Africa, proposed a temporary waiver of the World Trade Organization's TRIPS agreement and that would have resulted in more vaccine for everybody, okay? The TRIPS, people need to understand what that acronym is. So the World Trade Organization's TRIPS is trade, TRIPS stands for Trade-Related Aspect of Intellectual Property Agreement, okay? And basically, those waivers would have allowed not only the creation and manufacture of generic vaccines, but they could, also, they could produce more vaccines. Uh, Basically, we're waiting around for Big Pharma with their patent monopolies to crank out enough vaccine. They've been paid for it, but we haven't seen it yet. And that's because they're holding on to the patent monopolies. And we can't wait for that. And the TRIPS waiver, when South, South Africa and India, both countries with majority uh, communities of color, when they proposed the TRIPS waiver, Big Pharma op opposed it, you know, predictably. They fought it. Now, keep in mind, Big Pharma in the U.S., for instance, benefits from publicly funded research through the NIH, from the National Institute of Health, and they've never paid the taxpayer back. And there's also this myth that these vaccines were the product of the, I'll just call it, tragically ironic Operation Warp Speed Project. That's another lie, as we said last week. And again, these vaccines didn't appear in the last several months. They were the product of what's called maturational research that's been conducted mostly on the public dime for the past several 
decades. Okay? All Big Pharma did was tweak the end result, and they could have done it earlier. And for this, Big Pharma expects a patent monopoly that allows them to decide who receives vaccine and when. And that is inexcusable. We have more than enough legal right to to challenge Big Pharma and make them pay back every penny of that NIH research. You know, they've used this excuse for years now that Big Pharma has to charge more, you know, higher prices. They're out. uh, They're having to spend so much money in R&D research and development, except that the actual numbers show that's a lie. They have been using publicly funded research. And then they tweak it a little bit. Their lawyers say, change one or two in their ingredients, for instance, inactive ingredients, and boom, you have something new. Okay? And what's happening now is that we're still having this worldwide pandemic that is still out of control. Trade deals have to – we have to put people before profits, okay? People are dying. Um, so there's a simple action the Biden administration could do. All they need to do is drop their opposition to the TRIPS waiver. And chances are the EU and Canada will follow suit and put saving lives before protecting corporate monopolies. Uh, just you know, the fact that some of these big pharma companies have voluntarily suspended their patent, so what? That's voluntary, which means it can be reneged at any time. That's not a right. And patents, patent monopolies are not a gift from God. They are given by our government. That's us. And they can be taken away as easily as they are given. In fact, in the history of patent monopolies, Benjamin Franklin was one of the first people to talk about it. The fact is that patent monopolies were viewed with disdain for a long time, and especially when it came to public medicine like vaccines. The Roosevelt administration was against it also. This was basically the, what happened was corporate attorneys figured out that after a while the only technically legal monopoly that still exists is the patent. So they went with it. And now we're all suffering because of it. The World Health Organization warned against vaccine nationalism, they called it, and price gouging. The hypocrisy from that organization is beyond the pale. Okay? Pfizer and BioNTech, um, they were on track, according to Oxfam, to pocket an 80% profit margin. Keep in mind, Pfizer, according to Indies Times, was also heavily involved in writing the very global trade rules that established corporate intellectual property as we know it, and they did it back in 95. I'm going to say that again. Pfizer, lead vaccine manufacturer, was heavily involved. They helped engineer the, the global trade rules that are making all of us suffer now. And that was back in 1995. The reason most people don't know much about it is because, again, Congress has been stonewalled through a series, multiple presidents and multiple U.S. trade reps. They will say that, that the excuses they give most often to keep it secret is national security. Um, sometimes they'll cite the propri- alleged proprietary rights of corporations such as Big Pharma. Um, the thing about proprietary rights is this, 
you know, if, if I take out a mortgage on my house, and I do have a mortgage on my house, technically I'm the owner. That's true. But do I have proprietary rights? But since the bank kind of sent me the money to buy the house, it's kind of the same thing with these patents, all right? A lot of the research was funded by the public. Big Pharma has no right to claim proprietary rights then because Big Pharma never repaid the government for that research. They used it. It was made available to them with the understanding that it would benefit all. So you've got also the World Trade Organization rules enforce inequities, all right? And they do, and it comes back to it. Keep in mind, it's not just the United States. Great Britain has a long history of colonialism. Uh, okay, according to Al Jazeera, they extracted nearly 45 trillion with a T from India during the a colonial period that ran from 1765 to 1938. Okay, South Africa's health ministry reported that they were about to be charged two and a half times more for doses of the COVID vaccine, two, two and a half times more than EU countries for the same doses as reported by the Guardian. Don't tell me Big Pharma is not price gouging. Of course they are. And again, you have to wonder, you know, the World Trade Organization says, well, access to essential medicines is a human right, but they're not doing anything to protect it. Not anything at all. So there's another piece from the Transnational Institute, and this is an international think tank brilliant think tank, actually. Um, this was reflections from March 2020, uh, the need for a progressive international response. Their main thesis is this, that the pandemic health crisis basically exposes the severe injustices and deep injustices of what they call the global economic order. And it's true. It, it's absolutely true. The fissures we're seeing now are caused by this economic inequality that has been engineered and fostered and maintained by the World Trade Organization, especially through the investor, investor state dispute resolution process, which is a kangaroo court of the worst kind. Um, and they go on to say, especially in the global south, this pandemic is going to be worse. Uh, they talk about the what they call the ongoing legacies of colonialism, decades of debt, structural adjustment, and unjust trade relations, okay? They also suggest, they make some suggestions on how this could be fixed. Immediate measures, are, excuse me, immediate measures are the following. They allow uh, people that have lost jobs and income as opposed to bailing out corporate. They also suggest taking over hotels, private hospitals, and corporations that provide luxury services and repurposing those buildings to serve critical social needs, whether it's housing the homeless, creating a, an emergency hospital you know, with extra beds. They also suggest preventing pharmaceutical giants from profiteering from drugs and medical devices during a pandemic. Um, they also propose that any support to business should be uh, should have strings attached, and those strings should include not only improved working conditions, but labor practices, labor rights, environmental practices, 
increase, increase worker participation climate action. Um, they say we need to prioritize public health services for homeless people and marginalized communities, especially communities that have uh, endured criminalization or exclusion, such as uh, those afflicted with drug abuse, sex workers, and undocumented migrants. They talk about a living wage for everyone on the front lines, whether it's healthcare workers, sanitation workers, cleaners, farmers, you know, peak grocery store workers, whatever. Um, they talk about redirecting resources from military spending and corporate subsidies to basically meeting these critical needs during the pandemic. Um, they're talk they also suggest that there should be support for local food systems. And they also say they push for ending detention and criminalization of refugees. Um, and they go on and on and on. And basically, this study has basically said that this pandemic has exposed not only the vulnerabilities, but the huge injustice that has been perpetuated by what they call the global capitalist system. Now, I'll, I'll say I'm not necessarily against capitalism per se. I'm against predatory capitalism. There's a difference. Play by the rules. And the rules should be fair, and unfortunately, they haven't been. And so now we are seeing a pandemic that is exacerbated far worse because of this. And they also have said that, and I agree with this, COVID-19 is clearly demonstrates that neoliberal policies have not only deprived us of tools and policies needed to confront this crisis, but also needed to confront various injustices. And it's, it's basically put forth a dramatic change needs to happen. And that change can be implemented. All right? It doesn't have to be this way. Um, and then they make some other suggestions. And they say various policies and practices that have already been enacted, and this is maybe not in the U.S., but in other places, they talk about guaranteeing income and insurance. Uh, we have to have a stronger social safety net. They talk about stopping evictions, which makes perfect sense. You have people out in the cold, they're just going to spread COVID worse. Cut off, I'm basically stopping, stopping key utilities from cutting off service. Okay. You, know, you have a right to water and heat in the winter. Um, also, teaching companies to produce ventilators. And, you know, there was a good example. There was a ventilator valve that was very expensive and there were a couple of Italian um, engineers and they created a copy, they created another type of ventilator valve that did the same job using a 3D printer and then they were sued by that company under WTO rules. So um, they point out how in Spain there's been a temporary takeover of private healthcare providers and it just demonstrates that universal healthcare it's not only rational, it's ethical. They point out solidarity shown by Chinese and Cuban doctors offering help to Italian doctors. Again, transnational solidarity. Um, and, and they go on and on. And there's other health crises too. Um, they point out also that besides COVID, which has grabbed our attention, 
because of this global economic inequity that, for instance, tuberculosis kills 1.5 million people every year in the global south. They point out that more than 800,000 people die from being unable to access clean water and sanitation. And so they just point out the fact that COVID-19 has basically really put a, a, a magnifying glass, if you will, to what has happened under decades of neoliberalism, you know, how it has decimated economies, except for the rich, how it has decimated the average working family. And the last line of their article, I love it. It says, quote, solidarity is the cure, justice is the vaccine, end quote. So again, we know about the TRIPS waiver, the idea, whether it's domestically here under Bayh-Dole or internationally with the TRIPS waiver, enough vaccine can be produced if big pharma's monopoly patents are at least frozen or temporarily suspended and they are forced to share all information regarding the vaccine recipe, regarding the technology needed to produce it, and any other equipment. And then once that's done, we use instead of giving them subsidies, switch that money so that each state can produce vaccine on site. It doesn't have to be this way. Once again, we've been lied to over and over and over again. And again, it still goes back. It still goes back to the neoliberal policies of the World Trade Organization. And the reason why governments like ours, even they, even if it's a Democrat who really wants to help us, because of that investor state dispute resolution, which is basically a kangaroo court, they're terrified of taking on these armies of corporate attorneys because they know it is basically, uh, you know, basically, I've said it before, it's like playing poker with a dirty dealer and a dirty deck, put bluntly. And we've been warned about this, but we didn't listen. Um, Senator Wyden, Congressman Allen, former Congressman Allen Grayson, um, the secrecy involved. And keep in mind, when Alan Grayson was complaining about this, he wasn't complaining about Donald Trump. Donald Trump wasn't in office yet. He was complaining about the Obama administration. And Alan Grayson, he's blunt, but he, he puts it out there. And, you know, once again, you know, he said when it comes to U.S. trade rep and the secrecy, you, you can't have accountability if you don't have transparency. And you can't have transparency of what's in these trade deals, which go far beyond trade. We are giving up our sovereignty. We're letting them walk all over our laws. This is corporate, an international corporate government. Make no mistake about it. And we can't do anything about it if we don't know what's in it. And Congressman Grayson back in 2013 called it out. He said they, in other words, U.S. trade reps set out to do it this way, knowing full well that if they shed any light on what they were doing, there would be a lot of help to pay. And he also went on to say, too, about the TPP. That's what we were talking about. This was in a phone interview I had with him. Quote, excuse me, I've seen an element of the current rounds. They are binding. 
I will tell you that they have every reason to be concerned about them, the backlash. There would be a public backlash. What they said indicated was classified, and they stick to appear to the classification system by calling the shots in secret and by threatening people with every nightmare discomfort, including imprisonment, except for the 500 corporate lobbyists. During this particular issue with the TPP, which is, again, an extension of the World Trade Organization, even members of Congress, like Alan Gracie, he was threatened with imprisonment if he dared say anything to anybody. He told me that, okay? And, um, you know, this is something that he said, TPP establishes what are called procedures that are essentially abrogating our democracy. They, the TPP International Tribunal, replace our five-step established court systems for claims against the government with an alternative system that is wired for the benefit of multinational corporations. Um, he said it goes far beyond anything even remotely resembling trade and systematically interferes in areas such as finance that most people would regard as having no connection to matters of trade. Um, the agreement extends well beyond trade in a manner that systematically benefits multinational corporations to the detriment of health, safety, the right to organize, and other fundamental human rights and progressive values. And, you know, once again, this is something that is just out of line, the TP, all of this, whether it's the Trans-Pacific Pact, GATT, NAFTA, all of them under the auspices of the World Trade Organization. It is a corporate mafioso. There's no other way to put it. And this is one of the reasons why we can't access enough vaccine. This is why these big pharma is able to hold on to their patent monopolies. Um, they will they'll voluntarily suspend their patent, but only if we ask pretty please, after over half a million Americans died and didn't need to die. Um, this goes on and on and on. Um, and, you know, the Citizens Trade Campaign fought against this in 2013. Um, they signed a letter. They sent a letter to every member of Congress. It was co-signed by over 400 activist groups. It was a stinging rebuke of the TPP and the mechanisms used by the former Obama administration to ram this illegitimate treaty through. And they abused the national security classification system and the Nixonian fast track authority. Okay, there's no, you know, we can't play favorites, but regardless of whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, when they do the wrong thing, they do the wrong thing. And we have to hold them accountable. So they, once again, they outlined some reform measures too. In short, um, the Citizens Trade Campaign said that uh, these are reform measures that should push for a fair negotiation, negotiation approval process. Um, and, you know, this prioritization of human and labor rights, respect for local developmental goals, protect food sovereignty. Number four, access to affordable medicine. And they go on to say that generic drugs and treatments allow critical access um, to life-saving medicines. Extending drug patents, I'm reading straight from this, with statistically insignificant formulary tweaks via trade agreements is a clear violation of the standards articulated in the Doha Declaration regarding access to medicine. Translation, the Doha Declaration should be respected in spirit and the tweaking of formularies in minor cosmetic ways which do not change the drug in any substantive and proven manner 
as a vehicle to extend an existing patent or create a new one should be deemed fraudulent, because they are, and thus forbidden. And that's what we're really looking at. Again, this is why we can't create enough vaccine. And to go back to Congressman Grayson again, um, he said, there is no other area that has done this way. I'm not only referring to negotiations, but no fast-track immigration bill, no fast-track for other legislation he was arguing against it. We don't fast-track appropriations bill. We don't fast-track anything else. Why should we fast-track the sovereignty? The reason why they do it in secret is because our sellout trade representatives met with others, sell-out trade, trade representatives from other countries. Okay? Again, fast-track means they don't get to see it in depth. All right? It's, again, another illegitimate issue. And this was a lot of information, I realize that. What this really boils down to is this. There are basically two avenues that lead to our inability to access enough vaccine worldwide. Here in the United States, it's been, for the last 40 years, every single president, both Democrat and Republican, that have refused to use the Bayh-Dole agreement to freeze patent monopolies in the instance of a pandemic emergency like the COVID. That's one. The power's there. All I have to do is use it. In 40 years, it's never been used. And secondly, on the international level, we have a situation where the World Trade Organization, which was, again, formed in 1995 under the Clinton administration, but Democrats and Republicans all signed off on it, created a system of injustice where big corporate could basically run things like the mafia, and they could dictate to countries, not only if they, they were able to show that a certain law, for instance, caused them to lose profit. All they have to actually do under um, that investor state dispute resolution is say they think they might lose profit. That's all it takes. And we're going to be talking about that more. But these are the reasons why we don't have access to COVID vaccine worldwide. Again, keep in mind, these life-saving treatments for COVID as well as the vaccine did not happen overnight. They were based on maturational research that was, it's considered maturational after, I believe it's 30 years minimum. So they tweaked it a little bit, but these COVID vaccines are, they were not suddenly created. There's nothing new about them. Okay. And then why do we have this problem in the first place? Because there's been no transparency. So we don't know what's going on. And without transparency, you can't have accountability. Um, it makes a mockery of uh, the idea of democratic rule. And one of the best quotes I saw, and this was back in 2013, but it still applies. Then freshman Senator Elizabeth Warren stated the argument for transparency and public discussion, including the right of dissent, most clearly. And this was regarding the U.S. trade rep and the TPP, but it still applies. Quote, I appreciate the willingness of the U.S. trade rep to make various documents available for review by members of Congress, but I do not believe that is a substitute for more robust public transparency. If transparency would lead to widespread public opposition to a trade agreement, then that trade agreement should not be the policy of the United States. 
The only thing I had to say after that was precisely. And that's part two of my report. And that was Janine Moloff with uh, an amazing, uh, complete look at the problem of the apartheid, or the vaccine apartheid, and uh, just excellent work right there. Uh, that's it for us tonight. Uh, the, what a great show. I really enjoyed the uh, talking about wildlife with Cardick. And, uh, you know, I want to tell you guys, check out. Uh, Cardick's new YouTube channel. It's the Florida Squeeze on YouTube. Go subscribe, hit the bell, and you will start getting uh, more information on all of these uh, different um, places, secret places, great places to go in Florida. Uh, I'll be contributing to that. And uh, we're also, that it's odd that he's doing that too, because we're also adding to the Progressive News Network PNN YouTube channel as well. So there is uh, more content coming from us that will also be visual. So look out for that and also look out for Janine on Thursdays at 8 o'clock with the Environmental Justice Report. And I tell you what, I guess that's just it for me for tonight. And I will see you guys next week.